This is The Takeaway. I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks for listening. Yesterday, 314, it was Pi Day. Today, March 15th, the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. No. More about how Shakespeare made us all a little more vigilant on this day a little later in the program, if we make it that far. But we want to celebrate here at the end of the week all of the suggestions and stories you gave us on the literature of war as we continue to speak of the U.S. invasion of Iraq 10 years later. But first, thinking about a U.S. president with ultimate power, the fate of the entire world in his hands. That is why this latest Soviet threat, or any other threat, which is made either independently or in response to our actions this week, must and will be met with determination. Any hostile move anywhere in the world against the safety and freedom of peoples to whom we are committed, including in particular the brave people of West Berlin, will be met by whatever action is needed. That's JFK speaking in 1962 at the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That confrontation with the Soviet Union taught us all about Moscow-Washington hotlines, the secret nuclear launch codes that stayed near the president at all times. We learned just how the bomb had changed the nature of warfare and the nature of the presidency. Control of nuclear weapons was a White House-Pentagon matter, with little or no oversight by Congress. That precedent of unilateral White House power over nukes was gradually extended to today to covert operations, the use of spy satellites and robot cruise missiles, and now this. You may have seen this bit in the latest Bourne movie. Roger Solo, holding on relay. Requesting fuel grab. Say your state. State 2 plus 30 to splash. Copy Solo, fuel to bingo is green. Sourcing target beacon now. That's right, drone aircraft with missiles, cameras, and remote controllers thousands of miles from a target. It's a revolutionary technology with implications far beyond the Bourne legacy. Targeted killing of U.S. citizens anywhere in the world is now a capability in the hands of the president. To date, three Americans have now been killed in Yemen in drone strikes, including Anwar al-Awlaki, a leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Democrats yesterday in a closed-door meeting with President Obama demanded more transparency in the use of drone strikes. The president declined, according to reports out of that meeting, Are drones pushing the White House to take an even more unilateral position in the war on terror than the previous Bush administration did? Joining us now is David Cole. He teaches constitutional law, national security, and criminal justice at the Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome back to The Takeaway. Glad to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about the drones and the law. Are are the drone strikes that uh, Attorney General Holder has referred to, and of course that we understand from the news. Are they ordered under any particular legal doctrine that you're aware of? Yes, the administration really cites two legal doctrines. One is that if it's engaged in a war, an armed conflict, and it is by virtue of the authorization to use military force enacted right after 9-11, engaged in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, it claims that it can engage in targeted killing because it's a war. Uh, As long as you're targeting the enemy, it's permissible to kill the enemy during wartime. Uh, And that clearly applies, for example, on the battlefield in Afghanistan and probably also applies uh, to the border region of Pakistan where uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban have sort of gone over to to hide out and regroup. Um, But when you talk about Yemen and Somalia, places thousands of miles away from the battlefield where there isn't a war that we're involved in going on, 
They then rest on a theory of self-defense, which is that if we are about to be attacked, if any nation is about to be attacked, it can use lethal force to respond to an imminent attack where there's no other way to stop the attack from coming. So uh, the two thoughts there, imminence of the attack and or an active battlefield um, where we're already engaged and so military action has already been authorized. How do you maintain this notion of uh, imminence? Is there a, a trigger? Is it got to be hours away? Is, is, does a judge decide whether something is imminent or not? Well, in, in this program, a judge doesn't decide anything because the administration has taken this authority on for itself and asserts that it doesn't have to get any approval from any other branch, whether it be Congress or uh, the judiciary, to uh, kill even an American citizen. And with respect to imminence, the, the traditional idea is it really has to be a last resort. So, you know, if, if there's no other way to stop the attack other than killing the person, then you can kill the person. But otherwise, if it's not a last resort, you should attempt to capture the person, to arrest the person, to prosecute the person, to use the ordinary means of, of law enforcement. They have redefined imminence uh, to say... If somebody is involved with one of these groups that's associated with al-Qaeda and they're an operational leader and they uh, have in the past been involved in plots against us, then by definition they constantly pose an imminent threat to us. So, for example, Anwar al-Awlaki, an American citizen killed in Yemen, was said by the administration to pose an imminent threat, even though at the time that he was attacked, he was just driving in a car. He wasn't uh, engaged in any actual immediate attack uh, whatsoever. So they've redefined imminence in a way that, you know, George Orwell would be uh, very familiar with, but uh, certainly uh, the law would question. You know, you uh, have described in some of your writings that uh, President Obama is someone who knows a lot about constitutional law, once at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, do you think history will remember among the legacies of this administration as being the White House that put together the kind of unilateral doctrine of military action that basically extends from the atomic bomb through the use of, you know, SEAL Team 6s and special ops straight up through this drone technology? Well, I think how history remembers the administration will be determined by how the administration responds to the very reasonable criticisms that it has gotten that, you know, if the president is going to have the authority to kill people without a trial, without charges, that authority has to be public, the rules have to be public, uh, and it has to be very narrowly constrained. And thus far, it isn't even public. We all know that Anwar al-Awlaki, an American citizen, was killed in October of 2011, but the United States has never acknowledged that fact. So the president is asserting the power to kill American citizens and not even acknowledge that he has done so. Uh, and as long as you're not acknowledging that you're doing so, then you're not going to acknowledge the rules of the game uh, that set that forth. And then you don't have public accountability. So, you know, I, I don't think killing during wartime is off the table. It's an unfortunate but very real part of war. But the question is, how far have they expanded that authority? How have they defined the war? What are the circumstances under which it can be used? And those questions remain unanswered because this program is so secret. And as long as he keeps it so secret, then yes, he's, he's effectively asserting a unilateral, unchecked authority 
uh, and I think he'll be remembered uh, very negatively, particularly when other countries start asserting the same authority. Uh, if, by contrast, he is convinced to be more public and transparent about the program, and I think you know that really remains to be seen, uh, then I think we can have a different discussion. The technological development of the nuclear bomb, once a secret in the uh, U.S. government, uh, transformed the presidency and the president's authority to order unilateral military actions of one kind or another. The bomb changed the presidency. Do you think the technology of drones extends on that, changes the presidency by virtue of the technology? Absolutely. And and I think, you know, some people say, oh, well, it's just another step along the line. You know, bows and arrows made it easier to kill people, too. Catapults made it easier to kill people. But the drone is, is remarkable in that it allows you to kill somebody half a world away by pushing a button without putting a single American boot on the ground. Uh, it's allegedly surgically precise, so you, you don't have the risk of significant innocent casualties that you have, say, with you know, more traditional bombs. Uh, it's more plausibly deniable because it's so surgical. It's hard to deny the dropping of a bomb. It's easier to you know, refuse to acknowledge a surgical strike. And so essentially the drones have reduced all the practical disincentives to resorting to lethal force. And I think that's a, a major, major shift. Now it's just too easy to kill. And transparency about drones is apparently too hard for this White House, as evidenced by that latest demand from Democrats this week, reportedly declined by the Obama administration. David Cole teaches constitutional law, national security, and criminal justice at Georgetown University Law Center. This is The Takeaway. So from the hubris and power of an American presidency, dizzy with the deadly high-tech reach of remote-controlled drones, to the hubris and power of a Caesar who was once told, Beware the Ides of March. No. That basically sums up the plot of Julius Caesar, according to Shakespeare, courtesy of The Simpsons. Caesar got a warning about this day, the Ides of March, and he didn't heed it. Actually, he got a little cocky about the whole thing back in 44 BCE. The Ides of March are coming. I, Caesar, but not gone. And then Caesar ends up stabbed by all the Roman senators. That'll show him, right? And it all leads to Mark Antony asking Romans to lend him their ears. You remember that, right? Well, the Ides of March warning has stuck because of Julius Caesar. It's just the middle of March. I mean, there are technically Ides of July, Ides of October, and Ides of May, but no Caesars bit the dust on those days, so we don't pay any attention. But should we worry about the Ides of March or any Ides? Naturally blessed, yes. My rap is like a laser beam. The boys in the bushes say nice, feel like Crack the bottle of the St. Ides. Sip it through those who don't realize. Drinking ain't only to be drunk. You can't drive. St. Ides is a screwed up reference to all this to get a hip sounding name for a low grade malt liquor. St. Ides can be drunk all year round, according to Wu Tang Clan. Other attempts to co-opt the seriousness and intensity of the Ides of March haven't been much more successful. Oh yes, beware the Ides of March, the band that wrote this song, their one hit, Vehicle. Has anyone ever said that to you? I'm your vehicle, babe. Drive me anywhere you want to go. Oh, the 70s. How much do we miss the 70s? Kind of feels like getting stabbed by a bunch of Roman senators, don't you think? Beware the Ides of March.
Be careful out there, folks. Beware the Ides of March. You know, this is something that I can say every year on this day to my brother, Peter Hockenberry, in western Michigan. Hey, Pete, beware the Ides of March. That's right. It's a scary day. Why is that? I don't know. Caesar was killed like 17 million times today. Yeah, he was stabbed a bunch of times. But uh, mostly, I just want to say happy birthday. Well, thanks. And because it is the Ides of March, be careful out there. Oh, I will. Happy birthday. Bye-bye. Thanks, dude. My brother, Peter Hockenberry. Anything ever happened to you on the Ides of March? Birthday? Anything? Tweet us at The Takeaway or give us a call at 877-8MY-TAKE. Coming up, the literature of the stories of war in Iraq. David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.